Hello, podcast world. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of FNO InsureTech, the weekly interview show about all things InsureTech. And I was challenged today to intro our podcast with a question, and I did it. Hello. You did. Hello, podcast world. Hello, podcast world. Good job, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. I think I think my work here is finished. Yeah, you're done. Here's the episode. Do you think I could get a job as like a professional introducer of podcasts? No, but you could do like an <laughs> amateur. <laughs> I already have that job. <laughs> oh, and let me tell Lord. you, the compensation is very, very low. <laughs> very low. In, it's next, below. Next to none. It is below minimum wage. Yeah, that, I read an article that there's a city in California with minimum wage of sixteen dollars. Sixteen fifty, Emeryville, California. Yeah, the, I read that today. Where, where Pixar, your favorite movie studio, is located. What do you mean by that, Rob? That it's located I mean, in Emeryville. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, is that is that by is that by Hollywood? No, no, it's by Oakland. Oakland by San Francisco, Oakland. It's just literally across the Bay Bridge. Is there an Oakland by San Francisco and an Oakland by Los Angeles? No, no. Uh oh, is there a Woodway by Waco and and a, and a Woodway <laughs> by Los Angeles? Where is the University of Los Angeles at? Los Angeles. Oh, it's at the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. I thought UCLA was in Oakland. Lee, um. You need to stop asking questions or people aren't going to listen to our podcast anymore. I thought there were two Oaklands. I thought y'all were weird like that. How, why would you think there's two Oaklands? Because I thought that was where they were. I thought there were two Oaklands. My Uber driver in San Francisco is from Oakland. And I thought, huh, two Oaklands. <laughs> I, I was in California. I mean, I can't get a plastic straw in California. So I thought, why not two Oaklands? <laughs> Well, they don't have plastic straws. They must have two towns named Oakland. <laughs> they must have two towns. It just made sense in my head. Perfectly logical train of thought, right there. Mm -hmm. Can we? Can we? Are, we? are we done talking about straws in Oakland? I guess. I don't, I'd like to hear about our podcast today. Would you? Well, I would. Well, I, that's. It's funny that you should ask because I can tell you all about it. Today we have on a guest who's one of the more interesting, uh, thoughtful, and thought-provoking guests we've had on. And that is Carrie Ann Nadeau from ODN. Yeah, Carrie Ann is very, very bright. And her company is doing some amazing things in the world of data. Uh, I'm very excited to get to dive in and talk with her about it. Carrie runs a company that provides data insights to the insurance industry uh, for all different kinds of things. Um, and I think you'll find this, this interview very interesting and very unique because they are providing a service that's not ordinary. No, no. And I think, you know, we'll get to talk about her roadmap of her actual company. Uh, where did it start uh, and where are they today? And then maybe what are they looking for in the future? I'm, I'm very excited to, to have this interview with her. As well as some other stuff, I, I would call Carrie Ann a thought leader and so she has lots of interesting ideas on many different topics. We'll hit on those as well as she's a podcaster. Yeah. She's in our, she's in our club. She's in our podcast club. She is. And then, uh, you know, I think you look at her as a inventor. Uh, you know, I think that we've heard her say that before that maybe not necessarily a innovator, but more of a inventor of right. ideas. Right. That was, that was a term that she used and, uh, well, rather than talk about it, why don't we just let our audience listen to our interview? I think that's a great idea, Rob. And Lee, there's one Oakland in California. If uh, you say so. Without further ado, let's hear our interview with Carrie Ann Nadeau from ODM. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We have... Honestly, a super special guest, kind of a famous guest, and the first actual real-life podcaster that we've ever had on the show, Carrie Ann Nadeau. Hey, Carrie, what, how, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing good today. Thanks. Even better now that I'm on your podcast. Oh, the right answer. <laughs> 
Very nice. <laughs> that was very well done. I couldn't have done better myself. Tell me this. Where 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 are you today? Well, I am in beautiful Allentown, Pennsylvania. Have you been? I have been there. I have not. I was there during Hurricane Sandy. Really? Oh, it's a great spot yeah. to be. It's a bit inland. It's beautiful out here. We're uh, out here spending the summer renovating a property, but Harlem is typically home in New York City for us. Wow. Really? Yeah, that sounds really cool. Harlem's like cool now, right? I mean, it's not like the old Harlem where you took your life in your hands when you walked down the street, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's the same view as Central Park, but we get to view downtown Manhattan skyline. So I would say it's even, even prettier better. than living on the other side. Yeah. Exactly. I guess that makes you a Yankee fan, huh? So uh, there's a story there. Okay. Let's hear that one. Grew up in central Connecticut, right on the line. There's a river that runs right through the Connecticut River, or the right through Connecticut, aptly named the Connecticut River. Uh, we're real creative there. And east of the river, you're a Red Sox fan. West of the river, you're a Yankees fan. So my grandmother trained me to be a Sox fan. My dad, Ooh. my dad being Canadian, was a Blue Jays fan. So in the early '90s, that was the team. So I'm some mix of, bizarrely, a Blue Jays fan and a Red Sox fan at the end of the day. But but I don't hear any Yankee in that at all. You mean my accent? <laughs> I can turn it on. <laughs> no, you're not a Yankee fan. You live in Har- Aren't they? Oh, no, I'm thinking about the Bronx. I'm sorry. What oh, do I know? We can see Yankee Stadium from our apartment, so it's quite close, just over the river. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Are you a baseball yeah. fan? I am a baseball fan. Uh, Sabermetrics. I'm a, I'm a data geek to begin with. So data coming out of baseball is just massive and really fascinates me. So I'm a baseball fan for the data of it. You know, that's really um, a, a, an interesting kind of avenue that we've never gone down before. But you're right. I mean, um, baseball geeks have been slicing and dicing data Yes. For a long time. I mean, they oh, were yeah. some of probably some of the early data scientists, if you will, right? Yeah, the originals. Exactly. Yeah, they were uh, looking at that sort of information for a long time. And also, I went to graduate school at MIT, and they have the Sloan, Sloan School there host the annual uh, sports data analytics conference. And over the last, like, five years or so, it's turned into a bit of a, a better's paradise, right? Like, a lot of... Uh, people who are into sports betting go to get the brilliance of, of uh, MIT students who care about building probability models around sports. But I was the geek building those models. So I've done quite a bit in baseball and basketball, just sort of fun stuff, some fun passion projects on the side. Yeah. Oh, how fun. How fun. It is. Yeah, I, bet that, I bet that is <laughs> a lot of fun. You are the, you are the founder yes. and CEO of ODN. Tell us a little bit about ODN, and it stands for something, right? It does, although the reason we shortened it was because no one could remember what it stood for. (laughs) (laughs) ODN is catchy. I like it a lot. Oh, thank you. Uh, I I would have liked to have known that all two- and three-letter dot-coms have been purchased and are some of the most Mm -hmm. expensive domain names to buy before I went down the route of sure. acronyming a name to three letters, but some you know, Chinese hacker website, ODN.com. Don't go there. It's ODN. Sure. Like S U R E.com for us. Uh, yeah. ODN is a amazing company that I'm building and I'm super proud of and is my baby, all of my babies, right? <laughs> like put everything into this company and the idea behind and why I feel so passionate about ODN is that um, forever, we've, especially in insurance, we've we've tried to understand risk right. by a person. So we got to ask them a bunch of questions. We got to be like, "How old are you? How much money do you make? What kind of car do you drive? Where do you live? What's the color of your underwear?" Like it gets extreme. And the reality is, over the last ten years or so, there's so much more data about where you are. So, are you in a floodplain? You know, is your house in a floodplain? Uh, is your house in a place where you get a lot of hail or lightning storms? Are you driving on unsafe roads? Are you breathing dirty air? Right. So all of this sort of contextual environmental information that we don't have to ask the customers very many questions. We just have to ask them, where are you? And that's 
Wow. That to me is super powerful because it enables a lot more dynamic insurance as well. You can now price people based on where they're moving through space and the real risks that they might be exposed to as they walk around. So I think that it's like the biggest next thing that insurance is sleeping on that could really dramatically improve profitability by transforming the way that we pick risks. Right. You, you even say and talk about that it can increase sales, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you connect those two dots? Yeah, so, well, if you think about brokers or your sales agents going out to speak with potential customers, um, a lot of the time, what sort of relationship they built is, build is based on the information that they have for that customer. Can they bring that customer some additional value? So if I'm selling um, a policy to a small business that's in a strip mall, I might want to let them know that their neighbor had a black mold problem or their neighbor had a water pipe burst. Or if I'm a parent of a teen driver, I might want to let my teen driver know, here are some unsafe roads that I want you to avoid because these are places where car crashes happen all the time. This sort of value-added risk prevention and risk management um, information is super powerful. And if you're the one that has the information and your competitor doesn't, gives you a real strategic advantage on that sale. You know, that is really fascinating. I'm thinking, you know, we were talking offline a little bit about data. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine you have a lot of data points coming in to, to the system so that you can get all of this information. Is that right? Totally. So, Part of the value add of ODN as a company is that what we're solving is a very big data problem. It's not like you can add some questions to a questionnaire and get a few more rows of information. You're getting billions upon billions of records of data. And then on top of that, you got to make it useful. So not all information is reported, you know, for you, the potential customer. I have to assign information like, is your small business nearby a construction site? Is it neighbor to a company that has failed the health inspection? Um, or on the auto side, which we're more increasingly focused on auto, um, are you driving on roads that have had crashes? Well, not all crashes are assigned to the road. You know, they might put an address or something like that. So to be able to not only ingest and process, but to organize the data in a way helps people use it at the point of sale um, is, a, is a big data problem. On top of that, we make it even more complex for fun. Uh, I think we try to solve the hardest problems, but we try to model which variables of all the variables of the universe matter for losses. So we could throw a million variables into a pot, swirl it around and, and figure it out that way. Or we could build our models with some logic. So we try to work with city governments, state governments, federal government in order to figure out what variables should be there. Uh, so we're so we're figuring out essentially for actuaries, for underwriters, sort of what are the leading indicators of risk that we should be monitoring. Wow. Big, yeah. big data. Mm-hmm. Big data. So, so you're getting information from actual cities and then maybe reports and, and then bringing all this data in together to give us actionable information. Yeah, that's right. So you could think about it sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. You ever do a jigsaw puzzle, you get all the way to the end and you're missing one piece and you're like, are you kidding me? Right. Like the cat has eaten it right. or like it is blown away in the wind, but you know what that piece looks like right? Like you can guess if you've put together a beautiful meadow of purple flowers that that piece might have, you know, some green, some purple, maybe a little blue sky on it, whatever. You know what that piece looks like without ever seeing that piece. That's what we're doing. We're getting all of the universe of what your city, what your state looks like, and then saying, forget you as the piece. I don't need to know. I don't need to ask you a question about what that piece looks like. I can guess and I can do a a really good job at guessing at the risk profile of that individual, not knowing anything about them other than where they are. Wow. Hey, Kirian, did uh, you happen to speak at InsureTech two years ago? I did. Okay. Is that a flashback? All of a sudden, every, <laughs> everything is coming back to me that there was this wonderful speaker 
who was a MIT grad who talked about getting data from uh, cities. Uh And it really sparked my interest in InsureTech. Mm-hmm. So you're, you, I think maybe you were on a panel with a couple of yeah. folks, if I, re, if I recall. And it all just came back to me. I probably told, I don't know, 25 people about your company awesome. uh, and, and what I learned from there. But it is really neat to hear it now because I know what you were talking about two years ago. And it seems like you've, you've learned more and maybe even maybe even redefined what all you're, you're doing with it. Would that be fair totally. to say? I mean, the more you put in reps, the stronger you get, right? The more practice that you do, the more information that you acquire in this industry. I mean, it's easy to calculate a loss ratio. That's a, a simple math formula, but it's not easy to understand the politics and the dis- business model and the, the way that insurance companies make money, right? You got to be yes. around it for a little while to understand it at that level. And frankly, like the relationships of this industry I have made over the last two, three years of of being an insurance technology company, so many uh, fantastic people who want to figure out with me how this is going to matter for the insurance industry, because I get the kernel of the idea, but where we really have to figure out, we're frankly always still working towards is what's the million dollar nugget? What's the million dollar yes. application underlying right. this data? Because data is great. I love having data, but at the end of the day, it doesn't keep me warm at night, right? doesn't pay the rent, doesn't pay the heating bill. I got to figure out how to use right. it. And I need those relationships to guide that. Right. If, if, if you can, if you can uh, cull it down to that, that million dollar nugget is the, is, is the big challenge. And we work in the insurance industry and sell into the insurance industry every day. And so mm-hmm. we can feel some of your pain there of, uh, um, that I'm, I'm sure that there's lots of people in the industry who are very interested, but, um, but maybe it's a challenge to help them to understand, uh, why they should take a leap on stuff like this. Yeah, uh, I got good advice recently to never underestimate the pain tolerance of an insurance carrier. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But then I thought about it and I said, you know who else I would put a bet on having a high pain tolerance is an insurance technology founder. Because... Yeah, we try to make our living off of selling to folks that uh, maybe don't want to change as fast as we hope. Correct, correct. So I read somewhere in your information for those, for our listeners, there's a lot about Carrie Ann online and her, her company and, and speaking that, that you can uh, go find. That's most is very interesting. 7.5 billion records. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. We'll bring it down to something more tangible too, because 7.5 billion, uh, it sounds like a big number, but when we, look at maybe your neighborhood or your municipality city of chicago produces about seven million records of data every single day that's Mm. a lot a day (laughs) like yeah a day yeah let that sink in seven million records of data every single day and that's something that insurance has never tapped like come on this is low-hanging fruit guys what type of records would be in a seven million a day is that water bills? What, what are they calculating? What, what are they capturing? Brilliant question. And you know what? It's a question we get a lot. So we ended up putting on our website a data dictionary. It's a really fun interactive table that helps you explore all the different data sets that your government is collecting about you and doing during the business of doing government. It's got sample records. It's got links. You can go to the original sources and check it out. You'd be fascinated to know all the things that they collect. So they know about uh, every commercial property, every personal property that's ever been sold, taxed, repaired, permitted, uh, failed an inspection. And commercial properties, in addition, you got a lot on, on health inspections. Um, you also have police records, fire EMS. So you're looking at car crashes, burglaries and thefts. You're looking at uh, severe or fatal crashes where someone was transported to uh, an emergency room. You're looking at road infrastructure. So don't forget the, the city keeps track of the roads, right? So 
are they paved? How wide are they? What's the speed limit? Is there a stop sign? Is there a curb? Is there a sidewalk? Is there a parking on the left or the right hand side? Are there potholes? Are there light outages? I mean, wow. they get your tax dollars, your tax dollars at work. It's the business of government. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a fun thing, though. About 10 years ago, the Obama administration passed the Open Data Act, and it was a federal law that said, hey, you know, the taxpayers have paid for the federal government to collect this data. We should probably publish it because it's their data. Right. It's they've already paid for it. Um, Cities and states followed suit. So really, this data only became available digitally in the last five to 10 years. And there's still cities coming online. So like there'll, there'll be announcements about some places that are just starting this sure. journey, but this data didn't exist for businesses like insurance carriers to leverage until five, 10 years ago. And now we're helping like ODN's role is really helping folks one, you know, gain awareness of that data because it's there, but two, gain access to it where go find it, go use it. Some, mm-hmm. I know we work with a bunch of agents who just call us for lead lists, you right. know, tell me what property sold in September of last year deal, mm. like super straightforward. Uh, and then also sort of attaching them where it's necessary. So things like we predict where traffic crashes are going to happen on the roadway network requires a little bit more math. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that. I, I I saw that on your information that um you like you know the most dangerous roads you can call that. Yeah. How and businesses. how does that become? Explain for our carrier people because we have we have property listeners, we have auto listeners. How does that become actionable for, for a carrier knowing that one road is more, I mean, how do they digest that? Totally. So, well, you think about the way that auto is priced today. Uh, We gather a lot of information about the individual customer, their, their financial history, about 53% of your uh, auto price is predetermined by your FICO credit score which I've got a whole bunch of problems with because it disproportionately discriminates black and brown folks, younger folks, millennials, forget it. Their FICO scores are a bunch of garbage. So there's a lot of problems with the way that we do it today. The insurance risk rating, again, really only tracks the person and their purchasing decisions, financial history, and the type of vehicle they may uh, use. We're seeing now, additional innovations where we say, like, we're going to put telematics devices, these devices that track where you drive, or maybe only charge you based on how much you use the car, when you use the car, a usage-based insurance model. Um, these are interesting applications, yeah. but still don't get at the risk that the world poses to you. So everybody who's ever been on the road or ever been in a crash, right, knows, oh, first thing that goes to your mind, it was, it wasn't my fault, right? Sure. Sure. I'm going to try to find every excuse. <laughs> or we know the places uh, in town that are that are kind of dangerous, that, like crazy intersections or crazy totally. places where they merge together or things like that. Totally. So first way I would say is they, in, they introduce this data into their risk rating, how they actually, at, you know, operationalize their actuarial models, their territories, their underwriting decisions. The second way is what you just pointed out, which is risk management. So they pass that information on what we know about where roads are unsafe to their customers, whether that's a commercial fleet or an individual, particularly powerful, say, for millennial drivers that might not have that implicit knowledge that you just mentioned, like they haven't been on the road long enough to know that's a bad intersection. And guess what? They're driving through it every day. Well, so I'm thinking, so is the thought there that that you're now being insured uh, based on maybe who you are, but then where you're driving, uh, for example. And then if you do drive into a certain location, maybe a rate would change. Is that, would that be a possibility? That's right. So we're talking to a lot of car sharing companies who do the sort of pick up on the side of the road. You can park the car anywhere and you drive it. And then your insurance is part of the right. fee. Mm-hmm. We have those here now. Mm-hmm. right? So that model definitely works. And I think if you think forward to a universe of autonomous vehicles, we have insurance carriers whose models are built entirely on people. And we're taking the driver uh, 
out from behind the wheel, Correct. we really don't have much left to measure the risk other than where they are. So we think that this technology is super valuable for the future as well, which, you know, we could put a bunch of, you know, dates, red herrings on when we think that's coming, but I think it is coming. It's not an if question. Whenever I heard you speak about two years ago, you talked a lot about property and commercial buildings mm-hmm. using yes. uh, health information, or I think I think if I recall, you were talking about uh, maybe a, a restaurant in a downtown city who had a health code violation due to rodent. Yeah. And using all this data, you could say they're a higher risk, they're more likely to have a fire uh, or a problem yeah. or something. Uh, it sounds like now you're also looking a lot at the auto side. Has that been mm-hmm. a change or, or was that always the plan? Uh, beautiful question. So we did start off on the restaurant side. So back up a hot step in the in the history of ODN. We actually began as a government technology company. We're about five years old. So before we were ever an insurance before we ever matured to be in the insurance industry, we were a government company. We sold cities like Chicago and LA and DC and states. And um, what we originally built for them, a big problem that cities have are how to deploy resources efficiently so that we're not wasting taxpayer dollars. And one of their biggest, you know, most inefficient uh, uh, processes is around inspections. Sure. They have a limited number of inspectors sure. to go out to every commercial business, make sure that it's healthy and it's safe for customers and for employees. So we worked with um, Montgomery County, Maryland, little county outside of uh, DC in our very first pilot. And we said, can we predict which restaurants are gonna fail their health inspections? And we did with high, high levels of accuracy. Oh, wow. And it was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the list yeah. offline yeah. and it's terrifying and then we is it certain kinds yeah. is it, i just had I, I have to ask this question because of course everyone yeah. in the audience is wondering there is a morbid curiosity yeah don't eat uh, mediterranean food like shawarma on hot or cold days uh <laughs> sushi's usually pretty good so the reason really okay. yeah the reason on shawarma and, and nothing against Mediterranean people or their cuisine is that it's open air meat and it, they have trouble keeping the meat to temperature when the there days are hot or cold. Okay. So okay. thanks for eat, the tip. Don't eat shawarma on the hottest day in the summer. That's my tip. Okay. Wow. But, sushi, but, but, but we can relax at the sushi restaurant? Sushi. Yeah. Sushi. Oh, funny. Uh, it's an interesting story on sushi because the laws on sushi restaurants came in the 50s when we were discriminating Japanese people in the United States. Uh And it has nothing to do with health and safety. It has everything to do with historical bias. Japanese restaurants are some of the like cleanest places you can possibly eat. They're just their culture and their ethical and their sort of standards around food preparation are very high, right? Very high. If you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But we were afraid of raw fish and we were afraid of Japanese people in the fifties when these laws came into, came into being. Interesting. Now I live, now I live for raw fish. Go figure. Yeah, go for it. Um, but I will say, you know, some other kind of interesting fun facts that were relevant to the insurance industry. Um, we looked at Chipotle. Everybody asked about Chipotle, right? Because they had those foodborne illness outbreaks is big problem. Um, turns out Chipotle is just like every other major chain, uh, Burger King, Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, whatever you want to choose. It's a normal distribution. So there's a majority of businesses are doing just fine, but there's a long tail to the right of some company of some specific locations you don't want to eat at and you don't want to insure. And so for insurance carriers or reinsurers that are looking to package, they want to be specifically very mindful of those individual locations that are just unlike the rest. Oftentimes, other other precursors, college campuses, if you can avoid eating on college campuses, you should. If you can avoid eating around construction sites, you should. Water, electricity, and sewage go out. And guess what? Like, I don't know, the microwave's blinking. Is the food still good? Nine times out of 10, they're going to serve it. So anyways, point being that like knowing which locations and there are differences, not just by corporations, but which locations you should specifically be mindful of is they pose a differentiated risk, um, not just to customers walking in, but you know, think about the employees that are on the job, um, cuts, falls, slips, burns, all kinds of risk exposures for people that are working eight to 10 hours in those unsanitary conditions. So 
our company started there. We said, let's solve that problem. Let's work with cities. Let's help them deploy health inspectors, find twice as many violations, find them two weeks sooner on average than they would otherwise find them, save them millions of dollars, use the same number of inspectors, complete way more uh, inspections. Turns out nobody yeah, wants to solve sure. that problem, including <laughs> insurance. <laughs> yeah. So the challenge is, is that the margins on restaurants are so tiny that selling them a risk management solution, we've created a, a ultra complex, really important, fascinating mathematical equation that costs a lot of money to produce and tried to sell it to a, an industry class that doesn't have a lot of money to buy. That doesn't, that can't afford any, that can hardly afford to buy the food that they serve. Yeah. Right. So that I would say, when you talk about learning and you talk about journey, right, you can have the best idea in the whole world. And I think I have the best ideas in the whole world, but unless there's product market fit, you're, you're just, you know, doing research, you know? Yeah. So while we still have that product, it's live in five cities, Austin, Houston, New York City, every, every restaurant in New York City can tell you which restaurants are likely to fill their health inspections. But we've, we've shifted to auto in part because auto as a line has been really unprofitable for carriers. There's a lot of competition and there's a lot of innovation in this space. I'm yes, talking about uh, right. telematics, UBI, car sharing, yep. mobility around scooters and bicycles. There's all kinds of, you know, interest in, I think, exploring new uh -huh. ideas in the uh -huh. mobility space. Wow. Wow. You got my mind going. It, it, you know, you look at, you look at all these data points and see a whole new world that people don't see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, the other day someone called me uh, innovative and I, that never felt honest. Like it doesn't feel like someone's like, wow, that's really innovative. Because, and I had to think about why, it's because it doesn't exist. It's like innovation really only happens when you have something and you're like changing it, improving it, modifying right. it, yeah. you know, adjusting or whatever. What we're doing is invention. Yeah. And I'm an inventor, which is different. That feels way more honest to me. Um, there's not a lot of companies that can say that they're inventing, but I think that this stuff is really new, really bleeding edge. And the folks that, understand it enough to buy in and invest in how and figuring out and helping to figure out product market fit for different industry areas and and folks um we're gonna have a strategic advantage that nobody else has i want to ask you about accelerators um you've been involved in urban x is that an accelerator mm -hmm. a pro a, did, did you go through that program uh yes I did. I've been through three accelerator incubators at this point. Who? Wow. Okay. You're a veteran. Yeah. I am. I could give you the pros, the cons, when to do it, when not to. But well, what's why your don't question? you? We have we have um, many insure techs who listen to us. Why don't you give us a, just quickly run through the pros and the cons? Yeah. So shout out to UrbanX. They're one of the companies or one of the accelerators that we participated in. They're a partnership of a VC called Urban Us and BMW Mini. Uh, so like Mini Cooper. Uh -huh. um, they invest in a lot of urban technologies. They give you a bit of cash for a very, very, very tiny bit of equity. Um, so I would say a first tip, pro tip is don't give up equity if you don't have to. And if you do give up as little as possible, tiny. used to be market. Yeah, it used to be like market standard at six or seven percent, and I think that that has come down for the premier accelerators to four, three, two percent. Like mm -hmm. that's market standard now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's table stakes now. And um, we also participated in a program called the FinTech Acceleration Lab of New York City. Um, it's the partner. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's a mouthful. The Partnership Fund for New York City it was a collaborative. Um, established by Henry Kravis of KKR. Uh, so if we want to tag him on this podcast, I'm sure he'll listen. He brought together all the financial services companies and more recently in the last five years or so, insurance companies uh, in New York City to sh like literally pair with insurance technology, pair with fintech companies. We had eight major, you know, top 10, top 15 carriers and brokers who tried to figure out a way that they could work with us. That was the whole point. Like try to figure out at the end of four months what a pilot would look like. And I'll tell you, like getting to brass tacks was so helpful. Like you can go to however many panels and presentations and 
you know, accelerators will try to teach you all these you know, business strategy. It's get in, if they can get you in the door with the people that are going to buy your product, there is nothing more valuable than that. Uh, so pro tip number two. And then the, the third accelerator I went through was a Halcyon incubator in Washington, D.C., which is a social entrepreneurship uh, accelerator teaches you how to have values and grow a company. We're a benefit corporation. So we try to use data for good and not for evil and leave people better off, you know, not redline them, be very mindful of our approach. Um, so I would say that having uh, aligned values and a, a company that's really advocating for you not to sell your soul and a, a sort of accelerator teaching you how to build a sustainable, scalable business while also having corporate values uh, was really valuable for us. So those are the three that we did. I think they each taught us something. In retrospect, are was it good? Was it important to the to the development of your company? Yeah, I mean, they ca- I I think they came at the right time for mm-hmm. us. They don't always come at the right time for everybody. So, just being patient with and knowing what you need in that moment before you apply for an accelerator. So. If you are still figuring out your business model and you don't have any sales, maybe an accelerator that isn't right for you because essentially you're still figuring it out. You don't have a business to accelerate yet. Um, but there are a lot of accelerators that would accept you, right? Like they'd be like, great, you've got a good idea, maybe sure. a, a graduate education. Come on down, we'll take some equity. One of the things I think that you're hitting on that we're starting to learn because we didn't even know about accelerators before we started our podcast. We've, we've learned about them from talking to insure techs and, mm-hmm. uh, they need inventory, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, they need, they, they, they need companies to incubate. Yeah. And, uh, so the more, the more accelerators there are, the larger the demand is. Yeah. So you need a bigger supply and that, that's a, probably a good thing and a bad thing all at the same time. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. we talk, with some guests about the insure tech bubble and uh, mm-hmm. we won't go down that road because there's something that I want to ask you about. Okay. And that is privacy. Mm. You must deal with privacy every day. Mm-hmm. Um, privacy's in the news every day. Uh, Facebook just got stuck with a $5 billion fine over privacy issues. Mm-hmm. That must be challenging. Like you said, you're, you're a corporation for good but that's probably not easy with the access to the information that you have and the ways that it can be used. How do you deal? talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that makes what we do somewhat innovative is that I actually don't get any PII. I have none, right? I don't ask for any and I don't get any. I only know where you are. And if you think about where your phone like how many apps on your phone you've given location-based services permission to, people are more than more than excited to give away their location for yes. value. Sure. Right. So I want my Instagram post to have where I was actually physically located. I'll give Instagram that. I want my Google Maps to be able to route me to work. I'll let it know where I am. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I think mm-hmm. about. Uh, uh, privacy. There's a lot of technologies that are going to require increasing levels of privacy, scrutiny of those policies, and standards to emerge that frankly don't exist today. So a lot of invention that still needs to happen in this in this space. But one of the fascinating things about ODN is we can work with you, and like the privacy people in your in your legal office have never seen an easier checkbox to check. No PII. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I like that. So do I have opinions about uh, privacy though? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think this generation, I'm a millennial on the earlier side of millennial and that I'm not digital native, but uh, I think that privacy is on a spectrum. You'll give up privacy for value. It's figuring out what value people are willing you know, to move farther on that spectrum. There's all this theory about how privacy was just a very short phenomena that it doesn't actually exist, that it was very limited to maybe 2000 years of human existence where we had privacy and the concept of privacy. And and in fact, some languages don't have the word for private. They have like a hard time describing privacy. Russian, for example, um, has a hard time putting one word on privacy, right? Interesting. So I think 
yeah, I think, you know, I, there will be a lot of technology that requires it. Ours doesn't. I think you, you bring up an interesting thing, and that is the exchange of privacy for value. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I, I my children are millennials. I think they're very comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Don't have any issue with that. And uh, my generation, it, it, we're, we've we've gotten used to it, but we don't particularly like it. If I can be so general. Yeah, and I think you know when I talk to folks about what we do in collecting city administrative data, and I can look for you in city administrative data and find you, tell you a lot about you. It's pretty freaking terrifying. So it's yeah. not necessarily that like you don't, you feel uncomfortable with the idea that people have information about you. It's that you're living in ignorant bliss. Correct. That in fact, there's so much about you in the ecosystem. It's just now become more accessible to more people. Correct. Correct. Let's talk about um, one of your little passion projects. And I know you have several. <laughs> uh, you're a podcaster. You're in our, we're in your club or you're in our club or we're in the same club. One of, one of it is, uh, t- tell us about, go ahead and pitch your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I hate pitching a podcast on someone else's podcast because I'm here <laughs> no, for you. No, guys. no, no, we're, we are totally fine here for with you that. guys and here to see your, your podcast grow. Look, I think podcasts in general, and I, I told you guys this before, you're doing a great service to the industry to show different ways of marketing, different ways of reaching customers, different ways of of executing on business that are going to push the industry in a new way. We need to democratize information and share good ideas and share what works. And people like to listen in on their 45 minute commute to work. That's when we get the most listens to our podcast. It's called the golf course. Uh, It's a 30 minute similar format podcast conversation with uh, an individual. I named it the golf course for a very specific reason though, which was, I felt like the golf course has been a a very private domain, a very exclusive domain for insurance for a while, where if you get invited on the golf course to do business insurance, right? Screw that. I'm making it wide open. You're democratizing the golf course. Exactly. You want a business conversation and insurance, you can come on our golf course and we can get that out to the people who need to hear their good ideas, different ideas, be confronted, hear about the next big thing, start making deals. The other thing we're doing, which I think is new and cool, is we're convening folks at um, at conferences and we'll put together an anonymous podcast. Nope. I saw that. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I actually listened to that one. I liked it a lot. Oh, good. I'm glad. It was our first effort at it at Diggin mm-hmm. this year in Austin, Texas. Um, and 10 folks, we had reinsurers, carriers, uh, insure techs, Microsoft sponsored us. We had the head of Microsoft's insurance practice, marketers, an incubator, and a conference organizer. Ooh. We drank a lot of margaritas. And I'm telling you, it got real because I think insurance has struggled with letting folks within the organization speak freely, speak openly, speak on behalf of the organization. They're a little worried about that. And maybe rightly so. <laughs> well, the, the the I just want to jump in and mm-hmm. because I, I hope that some of our carrier listeners hear this and we love carriers. We work for we work for carriers and we work with them every day. Mm-hmm. But to get a carrier uh, representative employee executive on our show Mm-hmm. is is it's like an act of god i mean, it it <laughs> we've we actually we just had an experience where we recorded a podcast a full podcast intro outro the whole thing mm-hmm. and um which which we have to do with every carrier type we have on we sent it to them and they listened to it and their legal department um disapproved and it can't go on the air which of course it won't right. we respect that but um, I agree with you that I, I sometimes I don't think that carriers fully appreciate how ultra, ultra conservative they are when it comes to this kind of thing, when it comes to information sharing. Totally. And I think it's super stifling to good ideas. Stifling. Getting yeah. yeah. And, and the point is, is to get 
how awesome your work is out onto the world so we can learn, we can grow, we can move forward. If we are just limiting who can speak and how they can speak and what they can speak on, it's so stifling. So what we said was, all right, so this is my, my mantra is that like, I like to look for rules that are rules because we believe they're rules, not because they should be followed and break those. Right. So in this case, I was like, all right, if you can't be on the show because I can't say your name, what if I film a show without adding your name? Mm-hmm. What if we never say your name? What if we never say the company you worked for and we film it? <laughs> I got to tell you, I thought it was remarkably clever. Yeah, I I'm, did I'm, too. I'm putting I'm putting in a pitch for uh, for Carrie's Carrie Ann's podcast here. It was yeah. great. that was incredibly clever. It's super fun, and you know what? The people that came. We, when we turned off the microphones at the end of the night, we had a great meal, a lot of margaritas. Uh, like if I could stress again, a lot of margaritas. So <laughs> people spoke really openly. Like at the end of the night, I think we actually learned something. Everybody at the table was like, wow, I didn't know that about reinsurance or, huh, mm-hmm. I didn't know uh-huh. that, you know, one of the things I learned, uh, that, we had a lot of carriers tell us they want an API enabled technology, but then they're not prepared because they don't have cloud services to host an API. So they can't actually use APIs, but they want you to have an API. It's a weird Mm -hmm. thing. We, we shared that with Microsoft. Microsoft was like, huh, well, that's going to help inform our business strategy and how we pitch and how we sell our product. And they're, you know, the reinsurer and the carrier at the table are saying, yeah, that's pretty much true. Like we'd say three to five years and, and folks learned, right? Like we were able to actually share stuff that was new. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference and like, you're like, yeah, I heard this before. Cool. I'm glad it's still a thing, but this was like new information. We're going to do it again. We just got to figure out where and when. How do we get it? How do we get an invite to that? Oh, come, come, can come. We, uh, can we, can we get, well, cause, cause we like margaritas. So we're yeah. fairly qualified. I we're am halfway there. there. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Yeah. Uh, next time we uh, host one, we're working on a couple sponsored uh, opportunities with um, academic institutions, with large organizations that want to, yeah, again, speak freely, want to be more open. Right. That's one of the very refreshing things about the insurtech world and is that the technology world is a lot about, not entirely and not perfectly, but it's about a a level and type of transparency that business hasn't necessarily seen before or experienced. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming more and more pervasive as technology as a category and business in general become more merged together. I think that the insurance industry would benefit massively, mm-hmm. um, like you're saying, by welcoming it and, and, and enabling it. And, and I'm sure like you see with some of your customers and the people that you've gotten to know, the relationships that you have, it's coming. Mm-hmm. It's moving yeah. in that direction. It's just moving. It's, it's moving at the speed of insurance, as we like to say. Yeah, it's glacial. Um, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I but, didn't want to say you know, that. I'm glad you did. Well, I like to break down tech a little bit more, right? Because tech can mean a lot of things, but I think that there's a specific subclass of tech that I've got my eye on that I think is going to be really disruptive, not disruptive, modernizing, right? Not trying to like flip the table over. We're trying to like, you know, (laughs) put nice plates and silverware, like modernize, not disrupt. So there's a specific class of tech that I think we should all keep our eye on. And that's the ones, again, to go back to this idea that there are rules we've all lived by that we just culturally accept as an insurance industry that we can break and that will give us a strategic advantage. And it's a mindset. It's a, it's a mindset of collaboration versus competition. Cause if you always have your head down and you say, who am I competing against? What are my, uh, you know, loss ratio in the fourth quarter of 2018 compared to, oh, okay, forget it. What you have to be looking for, opportunities to work with other organizations that think totally differently, that have different values, that see the same problem and answer it another way. Because there's not just one solution to every problem, there's an infinite number of solutions. And so you have to find these collaborative opportunities to totally 
question the underpinnings of the the, the um, choices that we're making, the values that we have as a, as a or as an industry. So I'll give you one example that I think Please. I'm going to give up. You know, my million dollar idea here. I'm not going to go after it. So if someone's listening and has the gusto to do it, here you go. Here's well, your jam. first of all, that's okay. It's an insure tech. This is an insure tech podcast. Only nine people are going to hear it. So go ahead. Cool. <laughs> so maybe I can come back to it in 10 years and it'll still be uh, available to me. But like uh, one of the things we've sold life insurance, like we, uh, we have a really hard time getting, uh, using loss leaders to sell life insurance. So, um, for whatever reason, auto for a really long time has been a loss leader. We sell auto so we can sell them homeowners, so we can sell them life so that we can sell them small business, da, 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 right? Auto. But I'm a millennial. I bought my first car at 32 when I moved to the suburbs, not to start a family, but to start, start a small business. Mm -hmm. So I had small business insurance. I had workers' compensation, general liability. I had a life insurance policy. I have retirement plan. I have all these financial services plans well before I ever even thought about buying a car. Right. So if you were, you were upset, you were in reverse. I, I was in reverse, but what's crazy is that a lot of people are like me, right? Like the, the millennial generation that lives in cities, a lot of folks don't buy cars first anymore, right? So what can we sell folks first to as loss leaders? One of the things that struck out to me was a gentleman suggested this idea to sell uh, paternity and maternity insurance as a loss leader to life insurance. And I thought, hmm. what a smart idea. Like, when do you go to buy life? You, you go when you buy it, when you have a kid. Right. There's all these opportunities to rethink all right, we've always sold auto as a loss leader, but if the values of our customers are different, should we partner with another organization that's, that has different values than what we've always functionally felt like was the right idea and the right way to do it and look for opportunities to think differently, to break rules that we don't need to follow and nobody gets hurt. Yeah, I love so, that. Yeah. I love I love thinking about things so much different, reinventing them, right? Right. Yeah, our, we need to confront the values of our industry. And the other thing that yeah. bugs me is the way we discriminate in auto. Like if, if we still use FICO credit scores in five years, I will not have done my job as an advocate and public speaker, right? Like <laughs> there are so many things wrong with the way we do it today. And folks ask, oh, well, is your, is your approach discriminatory? And I was like, look, the bar is quite low on auto insurance discriminating people. It is already really, really, really bad. Yeah, it's kind of like, do you have a pulse essentially? Right. A reasonable a reason if you have a reasonable pulse no we aim to jump you. way over that bar but like no no i mean auto insurance this is some really interesting stats on auto insurance that came out of the state of alabama of all places that said if you're a black person with good credit you get you have a policy that's thousands of dollars more expensive a year than a white person with poor credit and like all these problems right wow it's not yeah, no, 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 two DUIs. That's what it was. And you have a DUI. A white person with poor credit and a DUI gets cheaper insurance than a black person with good credit in Alabama. It's fucking nuts to use like goodness, yeah, straight up language, right? So there's all these things that we need to confront the values of the products that we sell and think about how we're going to modernize them because the way we've always done them isn't the way that they have to be. In the new world, there's just new opportunities. And by being, getting back to the, being more transparent and more open and more willing to talk in, in groups mm -hmm. and freely, you learn about those, you, you consider those, you ponder those, you have those aha moments that lead to these things. Yeah. I mean, totally. we, we've been in, we've been selling in the insurance industry for a long time. I've been doing it for a long time and, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it can be pretty frustrating. First of all, like you said, mm -hmm. most things are glacial and they move along glacially. But people like you are bringing a, a invigorated excitement to, to our industry that, you know, that hasn't been there before. And, and, I, and, and it's not, it can't go back. The cat is out of the bag. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I have, I have good news for you. <laughs> yes, the cat's out of the bag. You just, you're just gonna have to be a little more patient than yeah. if, if, if you were working in a different industry. That's, That's true. and, and you know, that's our job as, as intertechs, you know, that's our job as entrepreneurs, as inventors, as innovators is to you know, figure out how to go up, down, around, over, through the fences that 
any, you know, any challenge of selling into any industry, you know, unless you're selling, you know, ice in the middle of the summer, you're always going to have challenges to selling your product. So it's, it's on us to figure it out and to figure out how to maintain profitability, how to scale, how to grow. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's on my shoulders and I'm happy to take on that challenge. Uh, good, but better your shoulders than mine. And, <laughs> and, and with that, we will end it. But no, seriously, we can't thank you enough for being with us today. You're you're a bright and refreshing person, and an exciting voice to have in our industry. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate you making the time. And a fellow podcaster, we're going to be looking for the shout out. For the FNO InsureTech shout out. Oh, you can expect a bump. You send me over some collateral and we'll make it happen. Okay. You you are on. All right. You are on. Oh, well, there we go. So thank you very much for being with us. And uh, and we look forward to meeting you face to face. Will you be at InsureTech Connect in the fall? I will. I'll be speaking at InsureTech Connect. Uh, I'm headed out to Omaha, Nebraska next month as well to speak at uh, Maha Festival, which was formerly Big Omaha. Uh, I'll be at pretty much every major insurance technology event. One that's really close to my heart is the Dig In uh, Women in Leadership uh, conference in Chicago in October. So folks should check that out. Um, I love speaking on this stuff. So thank you for giving me a platform to share my mission, my vision, and hopefully together we're gonna we're gonna do some powerful stuff for this industry. Wonderful. Shake them up. Wonderful. You got it. You got it. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll look forward to meeting you soon. Thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Well, Lee, we we inadvertently accidentally had somebody on the podcast who was like influential in your life. Yes, I would say a hero within the intratech world. I was at my very first InsureTech conference. It was two years ago. I had really just gotten into everything InsureTech, started my my career here at 470. And I'm in this room, I don't know, a couple hundred people, maybe a hundred people, I don't know. And there are three men and one woman who are going to be talking about their jobs, what they've done. And I still remember who it was. And there was this, this woman who commanded the room and her story and her passion for what she was doing really, I guess, you know, got me so excited about where InsureTech could go, about what you could do with data, about all the data that's hidden down in the in the basements of these, uh, you know, city buildings that you could actually bring to life and make all these decisions. So, yeah, I got pretty excited whenever I put two and two together of who I was just talking to. And. What did she talk about at that conference? That conference, she talked about predicting health um, failures, right? Failures of health codes and things like that. But it was it was really an underwriting world. Like, what if you knew that because there were health failures on these health reports, uh, they also led to more fires or that there might be more fires within something. So you're a data guy. I mean, you're very involved in data at our company every day. Right. Uh, This is, I mean, this is like big data stuff. It is big data stuff from a lot of different sources. I mean, she has to be able to put all this data together to give you some really neat uh, information. It's, It's big, big stuff. So what, comes to your mind about how it could be used in, you know, what we do or on the property side? Well, I, you know, I, I, I really see it as a big underwriting uh, world that not just uh, based on who you are is who will insure you and not just if there's a fire hydrant within 500 feet from your home, but if four homes in, in your area have been vandalized, the likelihood of you being vandalized is higher. So they're actually using police reports and all this. So you get better underwriting inspections, better underwriting reports so that you can uh, pay what you should for a policy, which means if you are less likely to have a loss, you could actually pay less in premiums. Well, one of the things we learned today, besides everything that ODN does and um, all the ramifications and interesting things about data was... What an interesting person Carrie Nadeau is. Yes, yes. And and how creative and and our audience doesn't have the opportunity. We talked to her at length offline. Fascinating, interesting person, 
very energetic, uh, with a with a lot of progressive ideas, and uh, it's great to see people from the outside finding their way into the insurance industry, offering valuable services, but from a different perspective. Yes, I would agree. Whenever I walked in to do the podcast today, our producer Justin said that, uh, you know, he really thinks Carrie Ann is one of one of the smartest people that we've had on the podcast. And I would have to agree with that with a, a, a degree from MIT. Uh, with all of her knowledge, she is a she has so much wisdom within her and um, really knows how to get into the insurance market. What a privilege to have Carrie Ann on the show today and for her to share her time and her, her, her vast knowledge with us. And we thank her very much and uh, thank all you for listening and ask that you subscribe to our podcast and that you look her up on odnsure.com is her company website. So until next time, we say what we always say at the end. Goodbye, everybody.